Hello, hello. Welcome to our Java STEM podcast. This episode marks the podcast's two-month birthday since its launch, and it's also special because I have Anika Morganon, who won the first and best of category awards in the category of biochemistry and intellisive this year. She researched a way to make vaccines and other viral medications, such as the Ebola vaccine, storable at higher temperatures to reduce the cost of transporting them long distances. While she is not playing with viruses, Anika is working as an emergency medical responder, a lifeguard, or at the Youth Mental Health's first aid support team at Joel Barlow she co-founded. She is driven by an undeniable curiosity for science and a desire to serve others. So I'm looking forward to have this conversation. And hi, Anika, welcome to the podcast. Hi, how are you? I'm doing great, thanks. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. While reading about your research, I'm really interested, and I'm sure the listeners are too, to hear more about your outstanding work. So first of all, I'm interested, why are vaccines and viral therapies damaged? What kind of problems does their instability create? So when you're looking at enveloped um, viral vaccines or live attenuated viral vaccines, um, they essentially have this covering over them that is... Uh, mechanically damaged just by the simple movement of the water molecules around them, which is what the vaccine is normally stored in. So just the kinetic energy in the water is actually what's ripping this outer coating and causing the vaccine to become ineffective. So obviously, vaccines seem to be stored at very cold temperatures, which is why they're so expensive to move, because that slows down the velocity of the water molecules, causing less damage. So my research kind of pertains to how can we raise this temperature without raising the velocity of the water, which obviously, you know, in physics is a very difficult problem to solve, yeah. which is why there were, um, there's a lot of approaches to how do we create these super freezers, how do we move the vaccine, where I decided I wanted to look down into the medical physics of the vaccine instead. And the type of problems that their instability creates kind of on an economic scale is, first of all, it's incredibly expensive to keep things negative 40 degrees from the United States, from Canada to sub-Saharan Africa, and environments that are extremely warm and don't have access to electricity or freezing equipment. And then on top of that, it's um, very difficult to maintain something called the cold chain, which is the process of getting a vaccine from manufacturer to patient and keeping it at the perfect temperatures the entire way. And because there's so many different transfer points, if at one point the vaccine goes outside of its normal storage parameters, the entire batch needs to be thrown out, which happens unbelievably often because it's so difficult to keep it at those temperatures. And it causes such an economic waste of vaccines, and it's just so ridiculously expensive to move them that a lot of these countries, especially third world countries in Africa, have difficulty vaccinating their children. The presented problem has an effect on various fields of medicine and, and various diseases. How did you target the urging problem? What was your focus in the research? So I was very focused. Um, I always wanted to go into viral engineering. I thought viruses were the coolest thing in the world. They were my first love, virology. And I really wanted to look into, of course, I was interested in the really bad ones because everyone is interested in, you know, Zika and Ebola and all of the super, um, super lethal viruses. So I started looking into the Ebola epidemic originally and I started noticing, you know, we have a vaccine for Ebola that was created by America in 2016. It's extremely effective, but why are we still in an Ebola outbreak if we have a vaccine? So I started researching, you know, what is the bottleneck? What is the problem that's stopping the vaccine from getting from the United States to the patients that are dying from it every single day in the Congo, um, Sierra on in different areas? And I found that it is the stability issue. And I started just getting really into this problem and reading so many news articles about it that I got interested in it from a scientific perspective point of view and then my research just kind of started from there so I almost want to say it was accidental that I got into it but um I never directly planned on um <laughs> that's how discoveries are born essentially when mm -hmm. you are just diving deep into the field and you find something that just arouses your curiosity and then you start digging deeper mm -hmm. that's yeah that's exactly what happened and then all of a sudden, I was at ISAF, and I was like, wow. Yeah, and on stage, <laughs> receiving the award. Um, I think from 
an external perspective, we, of course, might not have thought about that. It's really is their instability. The velocity of the water you've mentioned that creates such problems, and that's why um, this is not effective. So you've used water, but a heavier version of it. Mm-hmm. Why was that important? So I used heavy water because I needed to find a way to slow down the water molecule and raise its temperature at the same time, which doesn't play nice with each other. So I had to figure out, I was thinking back to my my physics education, you know, how do we slow down velocity? Um, We make things heavier, essentially. Yeah. So I was thinking, how can we make the water molecule heavier in its solution? And with that, I immediately thought of, oh, okay, isotopes. Um, But, you know, we have a radioactivity problem, so I had to look into a ton of different isotopes and I found um, deuterium oxide or deuterium oxide which is heavy water deuterium is an isotope of hydrogen where it has an extra neutron so it's twice as heavy the hydrogen and it causes the water molecule to become 11% heavier and it raises its density to 1.11 grams per milliliter and this is important because since the molecule is heavier it moves more slowly in the solution and it's a velocity problem not a momentum problem just to clear up for any fit physics nerds Um, so if we're able to um, increase this weight by 11% we can raise the temperature of the water and the velocity will um, will kind of raise to what the temperature would be if it was a normal molecule if that makes sense so being able to store it at higher temperatures with this heavier molecule because it causes less damage to the viral particles so by using the heavy water it essentially kind of slows everything down, which allows us to keep it at a higher temperature with the same amount of damage. Yeah, you use slow motion. You pretty much. We just slowed everything down. <laughs> it's just really interesting because um, if we think about heavy water, you know, um, the first thing that might pop up would be chemical tagging or nuclear energy or future mm-hmm. fusion fuel. But it's really innovative. And that's the creative part, essentially, in your project that you use that. I've read about the T4 bacteriophage experiment in your research. Mm. What was the purpose of of doing so? So my research, I didn't perform it in any type of laboratory setting. Well, it makes sense like um, like a professional laboratory setting. I did all my research on my own, so I could not, um, I didn't have access to um, really expensive vaccines and medical-grade viruses um, because I did not think, you know, anybody would appreciate me spreading those anywhere um, where I didn't have the proper containment. So I had to get around that blockage. Um, so I ended up actually performing my research in my school's chemistry lab. And to do that, I had to get a lot of clearance from my board of ed, and I had to um, use a viral um, model that worked and would produce the results that I wanted to but it wasn't dangerous to humans because I didn't think my school would appreciate me spreading lethal viruses to the entire student population. <laughs> you would have um, been on the news or CNN, BBC or something at, an, at the yeah, time. There was, there was a lot of convincing of, of safety in this. Um, so I had, to, um, I had to use something that wasn't dangerous to humans, which bacteriophages are viruses for bacteria. So they're not dangerous to people per se, where they're not going to cause a massive problem if there's contamination by any means. Um, so with the bacteriophages, I basically use those as my viral model. Um, they pretty much represented the vaccine, and I use those to determine um, kind of how much the viral particle was damaged in each of the experiments. So that was the actual particle that I was using as a model for the vaccine because um, in my position, I did not have access to viruses or vaccines. But you made your way, and it worked. So yeah, eventually. <laughs> yeah, and and I think it's really encouraging because I feel your situation. I when I started re- doing research, I didn't really have access to to higher performance analyzation models. And if someone is struggling with kind of the same issue that you might not have the ability to work at a research team, you can definitely find a way to to make your research work. But of course, it requires a bit of an outside-of-the-box thinking and, well, not risking the safety of your school mm-hmm. <laughs> in <Yes>. your situation. <laughs> yes, you can figure out ways to do it. <laughs> Could you share about the results and the applications of your literally life-saving solutions? 
Yeah, so I actually had really incredible results. Um, I was able to slow the degradation rate down to under 10% that of the normal degradation rate of the normal vaccine, which was a huge improvement. Um, and because I had a lot of cost restraints, I wasn't able to look into exactly what temperature I could raise it to, but I was able to get it down to such a small amount of um, degradation compared to the original rate, which was very promising to me. Um, and obviously, I'm, I was super excited about these results, but I do take it with a grain of salt because I do want to completely perform my experiment over again, and I want to investigate it with a few more different types of viral models before I really confirm that, you know, these are results that I'm confident in. Because although this was very preliminary and it shows really promising results, I do want to do a lot of different. Um, I do want to do a lot of different um, experiments that look at this from different angles to really confirm that this is a valid option before you know it really goes forward. So that's something that I'm looking into in the next few years, so I can really um, get some backing for my results, or I can decide, oh, maybe it doesn't work, you know. So I can completely, you know, stay true to the scientific method and I'm not going to, you know, overboast my results by any means. So um, according to my preliminary results, at least, um, with this degradation rate reduction, um, going under 10%, the original reduction rate, it will essentially raise the, temp the storage temperature of the vaccines, which will create, um, which will alleviate a lot of the economic problem of storing them at extremely low temperatures. And it also will assist in the cold chain and making the cold chain easier to support, being able to keep it at a more, um, more accessible set of conditions will be very, uh, will be very nice for a lot of the transport, um, of the vaccine, and especially it alleviates a lot of the economic problem of countries that are struggling right now to um, provide healthcare to their people. And just this small, um, and not exactly small amount of money, but you know, every bit counts. And being able to make this much more affordable will alleviate a lot of money to help them either buy more vaccines or to deviate towards other healthcare for the people in their country. Yeah, without a doubt. It has so many implications, just as you mentioned, not just on the medicine aspect of it, but also sustaining those developing countries from an economical point of view. In conducting research, it's just better to get a wider perspective and then a wider angle on it. But based on your results you've already achieved, I just can say congratulations. It's such an amazing work you've done. Oh, thank you. That means so much. <laughs> For sure. I, I really think so. Yeah, I'm just really impressed. And, well, I was not the only one who was impressed with your project, but the judges as well okay. at ISAF, they rewarded you. your work too. So if we are talking about ISAF, there is this question I really wanted to touch on, and I ask everybody and just love hearing your responses. So what does the ISAF experience represent to you? Uh, ISAF was a very, uh, I was very nervous about ISAF um, initially when I found out I was going because I actually didn't know what ISAF was when I won my state fair and they told me I was going. So when they announced, oh, you won, um, whatever, I honestly, I don't even remember like what category I won in my state fair, but I won that one for my research. And then they're like, oh, you also won a trip. You're going to ISEF in Arizona. And I honestly was up there and I turned to the girl next to me and I was like, what is ISEF? Because I had no idea. I was completely new to research and I had no idea what ISEF was. And I was you know, very quickly cued in that in a few weeks I was going to be flying to Arizona um, wow. in the middle of my school year. So I had no idea what ISAF was. So I was very, very nervous. Um, I was looking at some of the projects. I watched the movie Science Fair with my parents, and I was like, oh, my God, what did I get myself into? I'm so unprepared. I've never done this before. Um, so I wasn't expecting anything coming into it. I was pretty afraid. I haven't been on that many planes in my life. I've really never been anywhere. I've been on the West Coast once in my entire life. So, you know, flying out there, you know, without anybody and just kind of being in a new place for an entire week was a very nerve wracking experience. And I didn't know anybody. Um, so I was very nervous at first, but I quickly made a lot of friends. And it was honestly one of the best weeks of my life. I was so surprised. I was expecting it to be really stressful the whole time, but it was incredibly fun. 
Um, I was in the pool all the time. I was, you know, walking around Arizona. It was beautiful. It was warm compared to Connecticut where I live, where it's like cold and dreary at that mm-hmm. time of year. And I, you know, I think I can't, I, I don't, I almost think I came into it with the wrong attitude because I had barely won, I won the last spot in my state fair for ISEF. So I was thinking, you know, I barely made it um, to ISEF to begin with, you know. There's, I have no expectations for, you know, anything that's going to come of this. So I was, like, really relaxed on judging day, I think, because I really was just there for the experience. I wasn't, I didn't want to compete because I, you know, I, I just felt like my research was so um, below everybody else's because everyone had done this for years. Everyone had done, done things in labs and had these super complex projects. And I was just over here with my vaccines and I, um... And then I went to the judging process, and that was that was a little stressful, um, just because of some of the questions they were asking were very difficult. And then at the grand awards ceremony, um, just I honestly like, wasn't paying attention. <laughs> um, I feel bad about when they and then they said that my name. One of the people um, uh, that was next to me nudged me. I was like Annika, and then I went up. And then when they said, "Oh, you won best of category." Um, I felt like I was going to throw up, and if you actually watch the video of me winning, you can see me swaying a little bit, because I actually thought I was going to pass out. It was very scary, but um, it was a very, um, I think it was a very good personal journey for me, because I never believed in myself with my research. I was always really insecure about it, because I really didn't have any other research experience. It was very new to me. Um and kind of winning best of category that kind of said to me, oh, you know, some somebody believes in you. Somebody, you know, somebody sees that, you know, you, you have some promise or you have some kind of um, warrant to win this. And it also was like, well, if something was wrong, at this point, someone would have found the problem. So I, I had a lot more confidence in my research at that point. And it was one of the best experiences of my life. And I still talk to the people I met there. And it, I would recommend it to anybody. Wow, that's such an incredible story. Just how you you got to ISEF and how you lived it through. One of the things you pointed out that just really captured me because I can resonate with, with that and I think many can that perhaps the feeling of being in a an unknown situation or feeling underqualified might give you a level of being relaxed. And because you are not so fixated on, you know, winning a prize or making it to the top, you are better at representing your project. Did you feel that way? I really felt that way. And I felt that um, a lot of the judges, when they came up to talk to me about my project, they were interested in my journey of just like, oh, how did you get her? And I was very relaxed with it, and I was honest, and I was like, I actually really didn't mean for any of this to happen. This kind of happened. And, you know, I just basically said, I'm super passionate about viruses. I taught myself all my own research. I didn't work with anybody. I um, basically taught myself all of the molecular chemistry and the medical physics. Just I used to buy tons of um, college textbooks and read them on my own time. And I went through, um, Yale has open courses, so I went and I watched all of the recordings of the biomedical engineering course um, major, and I went through all of that, and that was basically just how I educated myself on it, and I think that they really saw that passion come through, and they could see that, you know, this was something that I care so deeply about, and something that, you know, I went out and I wanted to make happen. It wasn't something that I was forced into. It wasn't like I did an internship. I didn't shadow in a lab. It's I kind of forced my way through all the roadblocks to get this done on my own. And I think that really helped me. And them seeing, you know, this is something that I absolutely love. Wow, this is really impressive. And that it was a personal motivation and no one forced you. There was no external factors that just pushed you into that direction, but it was your own decision. And well, based on the amount of lectures you watch, you probably could have earned a degree at Yale or <laughs> or Dartmouth. I watched, in your... I, I watched a lot of lectures. <laughs> but yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, I'll be going to Dartmouth next year for biomedical engineering major, so... Hopefully those classes will be a little easier now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. I think you will be giving the presentations. 
<laughs> after that. You really sacrifice your time and I think you could only do it that way uh, because it's your hobby. You carve out time for it because you actually enjoy doing it. I yeah. really enjoy it. That's so cool. Now, there's a segment called Getting to Know the Person Beyond the Project Board, and I've already heard about how it was your AP chemistry class project you did, and then it eventually led you to the top of your category at ISAF. But I want to go back a little bit in time and ask when was your first exposure to science? Well, more specifically, when did you become interested in the world of medicine altogether? Um, well, I think my, my first exposure to science was my grandfather is a PhD of organic chemistry. So from a young age, I was berated with chemistry knowledge just from <laughs> him. And I had always loved science. It was, I had all of the, you know, the, the stupid little kid um, science kits when I was, you know, in preschool and I went to science camp. And I was always a science nerd. So I don't even know when that started. Um, but I do have a, I have a photo that I cut my head out of, um, a, a family photo, I think, and I glued it on a, on a lab coat, um, <laughs> in third grade, and I still have it on my wall. So I think, like, I can affirm that by third grade, I knew I wanted to be a scientist. Um, you created first, your own ID. <laughs> I think I did. I didn't even realize it until later when I saw that on my wall, and I was like, oh my god, this, I just created my own destiny here. But, um... <laughs> My first exposure to medicine, um, again, I've always been very health-oriented. I've always been interested in medicine. Um, and, like, looking back on my life, I see all the signs. You know, I had, like, the American Girl doll wheelchair and all that stuff. But um, my first exposure to kind of a uh, more medical, um, medicine-oriented um, field was when I was, I think, 11 or 12 years old. I was in a flea market in South Carolina, and... There was this um, this medical nursing book of uh, surgery, and I remember I had my allowance with me, and I went up to the person, and I was like, oh, can I buy the book? And the person looked at me like I was absolutely crazy. Um, and they were like, I, I mean, you can if you want to, but I don't think you want it. And I ended up buying the book, read it to cover to cover, probably didn't understand half of it. Um, but it kind of sparked this interest of, oh my God, this is so interesting. And I ended up buying all these secondhand college medical textbooks and educating myself on different surgeries and different medications and conditions and kind of built up this repertoire for um, just really weird medical knowledge. And um, like I, I, I just remember being in, I think I was in like sixth grade and I was like, I can list all of the steps of an appendectomy from start to finish. And it was just all these really weird things I was just so fascinated by. And then um, my freshman year in high school, um, I had read enough that I decided I wanted to enter the, um, the Health Students of America competition for um, medical terminology. And I ended up actually placing number one in my state for medical knowledge at that wow. time, which was just really random. I just don't know what it was. I just was so interested in just knowing all of these different conditions and treatments and then I became an EMT, or I, I became an emergency medical responder when I was 14, and then I moved up to emergency medical technician when I was 16, and um, I have over 3,000 hours of service on an ambulance, um, so I do a lot of 911 calls and treatment of patients now, so I am in the healthcare field now, which is what I absolutely love, but I am in the future looking forward to kind of shifting back to a more developmental and research side of medicine so I think I can help more people because right now I you know I can only help the patient in front of me mm, wow it's just really cool that the first inspiration or the first exposure was at a flea market and that was the starting point um, of you just laying the foundations of medicine uh, each time and it just really gave you a sturm and a great foundation to build more knowledge upon that including the research aspect of it I think that even if you are like 12 or 13 and you don't understand half of it just as you mentioned it was great for igniting that uh, spark and that passion for science and um, I have to mention to the listeners when I picked up the phone Anika just told me that she, she was spending 20 hours in in the emergency team that was right yeah so I worked um I worked from 11 p.m last night and it's um 10 a.m now our time and then at 1 p.m 
I will start another shift and that shift will go till 7 a.m. on Sunday. And then I work another job from 11 a.m. on Sunday until 9 on Sunday. And then I'm back at 11 p.m. for another overnight until 7 a.m. on Monday morning. That's crazy. That's just a really crazy schedule. And I'm sure that over the years, because you've been working as an EMT since freshman, right? Or? Yes, it's been over four years now. So over four years, I'm sure you've dealt with a lot of um, and different kind of medical situations that you had to uh, respond to and treat during the years. Can you share about your experiences being in that team? Yeah, I mean, I definitely think 911 calls range from, you know, the person who calls 911 because their their toe hurts to, you know, someone's heart who stopped. So my experience on the ambulance has been, um, essentially, I I just looked at my call number recently. I think it's around 700. I've done over 700 911 calls um, mm-hmm. in my past four years, and um, I've had some pretty incredible experiences that I would never have expected. Um, I've done calls in rivers where we're resuscitating people coming right out of the water. Um, I've done, um, I've actually successfully been part of teams that have revived people from cardiac arrest or death, which has been incredibly amazing to hear that, you know, my patient walked out of the hospital completely neurally intact. And, you know, I was there like when we found their pulseless, you know, dead body. And, you know, I've, um, heroin is a really big problem right now in the U.S. and especially in the East Coast where I am. So I've had multiple, multiple heroin overdoses and some people have, we've been able to get back from them. Some people we haven't. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's an experience of, you know, I've lost many patients in this job. Uh, I haven't been able to save people and I've also had those miraculous saves. Um, and just kind of being in that kind of environment, um, very intense, very, um, just very foreign to, I think, the general public. Um, it's not like Grey's Anatomy. It's not like those kind of, those kind of situations where everyone is freaking out. It's actually a very calm chaos. Um, but it caused a lot of, um, mental disparity in me when I was in high school and I had to sit in a chair and do my homework and raise my hand to go to the bathroom. But then in an hour's time, I could be at work and I have to make these calls. Um, I have to make decisions about my patient's health and, you know, I'm legally liable. And it was a very, um, it was a very interesting mindset to be able to switch between to have a situation where, you know, we're, you know, I'm doing CPR on the side of the road and we're shocking someone um, and that's my job. And then, you know the next day to be in school and have to hand in, you know, a worksheet that I was assigned. It's a very, um, it took me a long time, I think, to mature to the point where I could handle, you know, this is my role in this job and this is my role when I'm a student. Um, because it, it, I lost a lot of um, ability to feel meaning in my schoolwork because I was in such an intense environment at work. Um, and it was so life and death that, you know, it was hard to, and it was hard to find value in, you know, doing the busy work for a class. Um, but I eventually kind of overcame that. And um, I think I was able to just acknowledge, you know, this is my job when I'm in school is to do this. And then this is my job when I'm on the ambulance. In connection to Grey's Anatomy, the general opinion is about, you know, handsome doctors and then love affairs, which was is usually characterized by, but it's just so much more. And especially what you mentioned, there is this undeniable gratitude for helping someone through a difficult illness or just working when seconds matter. These are life or death situations. So I think it must have been really hard to be on this emotional roller coaster added up with the physical demands that this job includes. So that's why it must have had an impact on, on your school life and how to handle these these different kind of feelings you experience. Yeah, yeah, it definitely had an impact. Just have you mentioned the addictions and a different kind of problems, which is like huge in the U.S. 
I think that those addictions can be traced back to several mental illnesses, um, depressions, or just a very intensified version of anxiety. And in connection to that, you not only help those who suffer from physical pain, but with mental illness as well. And you co-founded the Youth Mental Health First Aid Support Team at Joel Barlow. I have to mention that each member of the team trains at a professional healthcare organization and learns how to respond to teenagers that are in crises. So could you expand on that work you do there? Sure, yeah. The youth mental health team in my school is a collection of trained students that go through professional training um, to identify students within the student body um, of our school that may be struggling with something and also how to intervene and get them the correct help when they see fit. Um, because I think a lot of problem, um, mental health is hugely on the rise as an issue in the United States. And especially I come from a very high pressure area of the country where, you know, there's a lot of school pressure to get into a good college, to do well. And a lot of students don't feel comfortable going to adults with these problems. And if there is a kid or a felt or a peer that is there to help, they might feel more comfortable doing that. Or the peers also, or the people and the kids in the school have more information than the adults do about, you know, the general well-being of the class. So being able to identify a student that looks like they might be struggling with something, talking to them if they feel comfortable, and then also if they feel that they're a danger to themselves or others, intervening to the level that they can get them professional help or they can call 911. And we basically train them to identify situations where someone is at risk for something. And they're not trained, obviously, to diagnose, to be professional treaters, but basically they're the middleman of finding out, oh, someone has an issue. How do we get them to the correct treatment? How do we make sure that they're safe? How do we make sure that, you know, nothing is going to happen in the meantime? And, you know, in my school, we do have a fair amount of suicide attempts. We have a lot of mental health hospitalizations every single year. There were over 25 people in my grade alone this year um, just for mental health problems, for depression, for anxiety, for suicidal ideation. And my class is not that large. It's about 200 people. So if you think one-eighth of the class has been hospitalized for something, it's such a massive problem that, you know, you think, I can't even think of a single one of my friends that doesn't have a therapist. It's become such an incredible issue. And a lot of it is college-oriented. A lot of it is the stress of getting into a good college, of doing well in school, and kind of being that perfect kid. That's a very large problem in my area of the country and my state. Um, obviously, it doesn't span the entire country, but you know there are so many, um, so many things that we can do to protect mental health and to make sure that people are safe because it's, it's such a tragedy to see someone take their own life over something that is so easily fixable or something that, you know, they just need to talk to somebody and they need to um, either be medicated, they need some some kind of help of some kind. And just being able to identify that and get people the correct help is something that is important to me because, you know, I struggled with a lot of anxiety throughout my life, especially getting, like, I felt it a lot getting into a good school. And, you know, I don't ever want to see anybody struggle with that but with no one to help them. It can be boiled down to the fact that we want to live up to uh, a perfect expectation. It can be an expectation of others or even ourselves that we want to prove ourselves to get into good college or different aspects of life. Mental hygiene is also on the rise. Mental pain is less dramatic than physical pain, of course, but as just as you said, it's just more common and also more hard to bear. And it can appear in various forms but since you've been so involved in giving help to others being there for them perhaps we don't know because these are kind of problems we don't like to talk about in front of others or it's just hard to open up so at the moment some might be listening who is struggling with some kind of mental illness or depression anxiety what would your piece of advice or encouragement to be to that someone um, you, I promise, no matter what, you are not alone. There are hundreds upon thousands of people that are suffering from the same thing. And although it may seem very isolating, please reach out for help because 
I know that there's a lot of just general anxiety about telling your parents, telling people in school, telling whoever, because there's this false idea that you'll be seen as weak or incapable. And that is just that. It's a completely false idea because there is nothing more important than your mental health. And there is nothing in this world worth sacrificing for that. And although you might think, oh, I have to stay up all night every night to get all this homework done. That is not the answer. That is unsustainable. It's unhealthy. Please reach out to help and for help and do not be afraid to talk about these things with someone that you feel comfortable with. And that person could be, you know, it could be a friend. It could be a teacher. It could be, you know, it could be your lunch lady. It could be anybody in your life that you feel comfortable talking about. And as long as you approach it with the air of, you know, I have an issue that I would really like to talk about. People are open to hearing about it, people who care about you, because lots of people care about you, I promise, even if it doesn't seem that way. Mm-hmm. And being being open to talking about it, I know it's uncomfortable, but you have to be able to get it out there, and you know, you're not going to be able to recover and fix your life until you can kind of open up about it to the people around you, the people who care about you, and you live with and kind of face it together um, because a lot of people think, oh, I can handle it on my own. I can handle it, handle it on my own. And, you know, oh, there is a huge level of, you know, self-maintaining. You know, if you are struggling that much, you, you do need to reach out for help because there's it can be so much better. You know, you don't have to face it alone. Absolutely. There's power in community, undeniably, and receiving help wherever um, that person can. There is an, another aspect I wanted to touch on because that's also huge. I think many of us have or might have experienced it in um, some season of our lives, but a lot of teens might feel like an outsider and can become a target of bullies, you know, by mean girls or by anyone in particular. So how can someone best navigate that awful social scenario i have a twofold approach to that first one success is the best revenge better (laughs) yourself better your life be successful because nothing feels better than showing up the people who try to put you down um i was bullied i i wasn't i wasn't bullied that badly um ever i was um i was always very tall so people were pretty afraid to bully me i think um but (laughs) I was six feet in eighth grade, so people were always a little nervous. <laughs> wow. <laughs> but, yeah, I was a big person. Um, but I did have a lot of people who would jeer, especially. I was very nerdy. Um, but, you know, you can, like, people who said, oh, like, you're nerdy, you're this, you're that, um, it feels pretty good to say, oh, well, yeah, I was nerdy, and now look what happened. Yes, I was nerdy, and it got me somewhere great. Um And I think just always focusing on bettering yourself, doing what you love, doing your passions, and doing things that make you happy especially is the best way to kind of combat that situation. But on the other side, you know, don't take anything from anybody that you don't have to. You know, if someone is making your life worse in some way for no apparent reason other than just to be mean or just to be cruel, then that should not be tolerated. Do not take any mistreatment like that. Do not take any unfair treatment and go to the appropriate people to deal with that because no one deserves to feel oppressed in that kind of situation. And, you know, always just essentially like take no, no, like take no crap, you know, make Mm -hmm. sure like push against the people who, you know, are doing something just to be cruel to you because it comes from a place of jealousy and insecurity. And, you know, that's something that they need to deal with on their own and they shouldn't have to put that burden on you. Um, so I know it's hard to say, just stand up for yourself. Um, but you know, it, you don't deserve that. No one deserves that. And the bullies are coming, they're, they're not, they're bullying because they need to fulfill a need of some sort in their life. And that's a them problem, not a you problem. And they don't need to make your life worse because of it. I 100% agree. That's such a valuable advice because those years will pass. And it means like four years of your life. But in the that time, you can 
uh, build yourself, become a better version of yourself. Really, you have to try to learn not to respond to those voices, but go on your own path and follow whatever you are passionate about. I actually have a personal experience with that, just as a side note. I've um, had really good friends in, in high school, but there have been some who've been calling me a kind of Nobel Prize winner, you know, behind my back because I was just so focused on doing research. It was before the science fair. And in Hungary, there is an English interview process that could actually take you to an international seminar in Stockholm and then attend the Nobel festivities. I had the opportunity to go there last year. And it was just really funny thinking back all the names they've been calling me and how life did me just this by actually going there. <laughs> That's pretty funny. Yeah, pe people made the Nobel Prize joke with me sometimes and I'm just like, oh god, no, don't create that expectation, please. <laughs> well, for from a few years from now, I will see you on TV announcing that it's made such, Aww. your vaccines <laughs> have made such a lasting impact on humanity as a whole. So Aww. I envision the future. <laughs> right now for you. You cure patients or, you know, playing with viruses, but you're also working in a busy restaurant and you're also captain of the Barlow Science Bolt, a member of the varsity math team. That's a lot of things, you know, going on in your life. How do you handle time management? It has always been a really big issue for me, time management. Um, I am not going to lie, I did not have the best grades in high school. I was very focused on developing um, my knowledge versus what was on paper so my time management fell through often where I didn't get assignments done and I would take a bad grade and it would hurt me um, academically and I you know I was very nervous you know applying to college because you know my transcript was you know like when you're comparing you know like Ivy League applicants I was bottom of the barrel with my with my transcript there were People that would look at it and they're like, you have no hope of getting into the Ivy League. And, you know, it really scared me because I really wanted to, well, I fell in love with Dartmouth instantly. And there was, I was so in love with this school and I was like, oh my God, I'm never going to be able to get in here. It's 7% except I was like, there's no way. But I was so in love with the school. I was like, I have to try. Yeah. And, um, it, that was so my time management like fell through a lot with those kind of assignments, and you know, I luckily, a side note, my college journey ended up fine. I did get into Dartmouth, and I will be attending. But yay, um, congrats! <laughs> I think they saw they saw through that all that all that great stuff. Um, I, had, I had a few other things, but um, my time management was essentially um, doing assignments in between calls on the ambulance, I would study by making online flashcards and then I would um, voice to or text to voice them while I was in the shower. So I would listen to things and I would study while I was doing other things. I would listen to them in the car. So it's time management is a lot easier than people think if you just think about all of the little in between moments that you have in a day, walking between classes, reading, um, reading pages of your book. Um, I was, I had a very eidetic memory, so studying was on the easier end for me. I could just read something and I could remember it pretty well. Um, what a blessing. All, <laughs> yes, it, it definitely helped me quite a lot, but you know, there's all of these in-between moments in your day, walking between classes, um, driving, um, eating meals and, you know, take advantage of all of these moments because, a lot of people think, oh, I don't have any time in my day to study if they just have like an hour at home. But, you know, when you're driving sports practice, when uh, I did a lot of mental studying, which sounds really weird, but if you're just sitting there, you know, if you just rethink about everything that you learned that day and you just run through it in your head, it's almost just you're re reactivating the information and it can keep it fresh in your mind a lot longer. So just being able to take, take advantage of all of these little in-between times in the day you will find how much they add up and how much time you can save. And also on top of that, talk to your teachers. Um, I have many teachers where I would come up to them and I would say, it's honestly, I do not have time to do this assignment today. Can I give it to you tomorrow? Or, you know, there were times in advance where I knew I was going to have an incredibly busy week coming up and I would go to them and say, hey, this week does not look very good for me. I would really appreciate 
you know, a little bit of leeway here, an extension here, an extension there. And some of, most of the time they would give it to me. Sometimes they would say, no, it has to be here. And I would find a way to get it done or I would take the hit with my grade. Um, and basically I would always just very honestly communicate with people, with my administrators and my guidance counselor and my teachers and figure out, you know, a way to work my academics around my schedule because they were very understanding as long as I came to them honestly and they knew I wasn't blowing it off to go to parties or to go and do it just, you know, not do anything. They knew I was, you know, actively doing research and I was working and I was on the ambulance. So they were understanding and they were extremely compassionate. Yeah, that's awesome. Is that you are making studying your lifestyle and squeezing it in, um, not just squeezing it in, but, you know, implementing in just everyday situations, getting the most out of it. And also what you are communicating is I feel like you don't study hard, but of course you study hard, but it's more about studying smart, making it an efficient process. There is a quote I really like by Abraham Lincoln. It applies to your situation and your advice that said um, that if he has six hours to chop down a tree, he would spend the first four hours sharpening the axe so that you really gotta use your tools, use what you have and just make the smartest way to get it done. Yes, I highly agree. Along with handling your time well, you're also a woman of innovation. So I'm interested, who's your inspiration? Just a rhythm thrown out there. (laughs) (laughs) Um, No, it's okay. Um, My inspiration is definitely my AP chemistry teacher, um, Dr. Catherine Nezzo. She's actually a woman of innovation too, which was, we were both completely separate in winning that, which was very odd. But... um, we were both independently nominated, so that was really freaky when we both found out. We're like, wow, there's 11 of us in the entire state, and it was both of us. That's um, so cool. We were two of them. That was, that was very interesting. Um, but she is completely my inspiration. She is, um, first of all, she's a woman in STEM. She, her career started when women were extremely oppressed in the STEM fields and just kind of coming into, you know, their... Um, their kind of time with STEM. She was the only person in her PhD class. She had three kids while she was doing it, and she basically pushed through every single barrier in her education to get her PhD in analytical chemistry. And she was also definitely the hardest and most difficult teacher I've ever had in my entire life, but she was extremely fair. Um, her tests were known to sink people's grades. I mean, there were AP chemistry tests where, like, people were getting 30s consistently. It was very rough. Um, people were giving their all studying, and it was an extreme... She made the class very, very difficult, but she essentially taught it at a PhD level, which was, you know, it was aggravating for us because, you know, we have different classes. We can't spend six hours a day on chemistry, but... When you walk out of that class, you realize, I understand the background of every single reason why this reaction happens this way. Mm -hmm. I'm not just memorizing facts. I know, like, I know why. And the way that she taught was so backbreakingly awesome that I loved that. It was, it made me realize how passionate I was about chemistry, and it also made me really value, you know, you don't have to learn every single name of all of the different amino groups. You just need to know, you know, you need to know why this happens. You need to know the function. You need to know the implications. You need to know, you know, how does this affect a solution? How does this affect a reaction? And understanding the why behind everything will always be more important than understanding just memorizing the facts. So that was extremely impressive to me. And on top of that, her support for me was incredible I mean I have never had a person support me the way that she did when I was writing my paper for the science fairs when I was doing my poster boards I would be making edits at two in the morning and I would email her and she would get back to me at like 205 in the morning and she would be on the document she would be editing it she'd be helping me and she was someone who I would come in at any point in the day and I'd be like, oh my God, Dr. Nezzo, I need help with this, I need help with that. 
and she would drop everything to help me, and she was always there. And she, I mean, she actually went to ISEP, um, and she hung out with me a lot, and it was, it's, it was so incredible. And um, uh, this is just a complete side note, but um, at our school's award ceremony a little later in the year, she, um, I got one of the science awards for my school, which I guess was fitting. Um, and she presented it to me and she gave me, um, a keychain in the award that said, um, she believed she could, so she did. And I still have that keychain with mm-hmm. me and I keep it with me. And it just meant a lot that, um, she taught me kind of from, um, she had me when I had just started high school in like normal chemistry. And eventually, you know, I took, um, college chem or AP chem with her and, you know, just being, having someone there who was a complete rock for me and was, you know, pretty much she was going to push me into anything. Anytime I said, I don't think I can do this, I'm not, not going to compete in the fair, um, which actually almost happened with my state fair. I almost didn't go um, because I just didn't think I could get everything done. She was like, you will get everything done. I will pretty much force you to get everything done. And she did. Um <laughs> And, you know, like, look what, look what came of it. And she, um, just having someone there who was willing to push me to that extent and who believed in me was just really inspiring. And I hope that, you know, in the future, um, hopefully I can do that for other people in STEM. I'm just speechless. She sounds like an awesome and groundbreaking and such an encouraging one but she also pushes you outside of your comfort zone has your back and just wishes you the best to to reach for the stars and beyond thinking beyond yeah it's just really inspiring to have that support from an educational and from all type of point of view shout out to her because, yeah, she, she really deserves the, the praise too. I really like her teaching concept that she's not focused on um, knowing the facts by heart, but actually knowing why that process happens. And it's so valuable because that is gonna stay in your brain for so much longer than just facts that do not make sense. Well, now we're moving uh, to a lighter field. And I gotta tell you that I saw you wearing a mermaid tail, so I guess that might be a way of spending your free time. Please expand on that. Oh my god, yeah. Um, I'm definitely kind of a, a, a goofball, or a, I don't know, I like, um, I like fantasy things kind of in my free time. I do have a full movie prosthetic mermaid tail um, that I... Um, that I would swim around in, and kids love to see it, and it's a great ab workout on top of that. Um, yeah, working and, those lower abs. <laughs> yes, that's a lot of ab work in that, but um, yeah, that's something that I do in my free time, definitely. I love swimming. I'm really into running and being outside. I love hiking, um, and I think in my free time, I mean, I'm also, like, I, I also absolutely love tattoos and piercings, so I'm you can't see it in my photos because I don't have any visible tattoos, but I have um, about half of my torso tattooed, um, and I have other tattoos on my body that are hidden, but I'm really into body art and body modifications. I have 21 piercings wow. in my body, and I really love just my, my body. It's my canvas. I can do whatever I want with it. Um, so I'm really into doing that on my free time. Um, I work a lot, obviously, so I don't have very much free time. Um but I really do just like being outside and I love artwork and whether that's on my body getting it tattooed or piercings and jewelry. Um, I do a lot of painting and sewing and just general craft stuff. I, I wish I had more free time because I, my genuine, like how I like to spend my you know, free time with air quotes is on the ambulance or doing research. So, um, yeah, I guess I don't. I guess I don't have too many hobbies. I think I'm very committed to just a few. 
Well, what you just listed in your free time, that's also a lot of hobbies. Um, I actually really like The Mermaid Tale. I don't know if you've uh, watched... There was this Australian TV show called H2O. Oh, H2O. oh yes, I have watched it. <laughs> <laughs> I was so addicted to it <laughs> growing I up. I loved that growing up. As a kid, I used to watch that all the time. Yeah, who was your favorite? Just as a side note. <laughs> Oh my god, I think it was, was it, was it Nikki? Was that her name? Yeah, or? Ricky. Yeah, Ricky, yeah, Ricky was my favorite. Yeah, who could boil water and had that superpower. <laughs> yeah, she was cool, she was cool, I liked it. And now you can be your own mermaid. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I actually really like the, the superpower of freezing because I thought that would be so cool that I could freeze any type of orange juice or like any type of fruit juice and have an instant popsicle. That was my inspiration. Oh my god, but... <laughs> that would be really interesting. Yeah. Oh, I never thought about that. Oh my god, there's so many. I, I think I would want all the power. There's, there's too many to choose from. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just the combined version of the three. Mm-hmm. That would yeah, be. That would be are nice. you into traveling or what countries you wish to visit in the future? What are on your bucket list? Um, on my bucket list, I actually, well, I don't have a passport right now. I'm working on it. Um, so I physically cannot travel to different countries, but in the future, I really would like to go to Australia. That's definitely on my list. Um, I would really like to go to Europe, to France, um, Easter Island, and I'd really like to go to the Galapagos. Oh, Galapagos. Oh, the islands. That's real cool. Yeah, I'm excited. I think college will give me a chance to travel a little bit more. I'll look forward to, to seeing your travel photos and Insta- Post on Instagram, definitely. <laughs> yeah. Okay, for the end, I planned a little bit of a this or that game section or vanilla. Chocolate. East Coast or West Coast? I mean, I'm from the East Coast. East Coast, East Coast, so gotta go with the East Coast. <laughs> okay. Mermaids or fairies? Mermaids. All the way. Okay, mm-hmm. TV shows or movies? Movies. Favorite? Do you have a favorite one? Uh, oh, God. Favorite movie? I'm a horror movie person. Um, I'm a fan of the Conjuring universe, which is a series of movies. Um, I'm a fan of As Above, So Below. Um, I'm trying to think. Oh, my God. There's so many horror movies. I love like The Descent, both one and two. I think two is a little bit better. But, yeah, I'm a horror movie um, connoisseur. (laughs) (laughs) That's horrifying. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. (laughs) Forest or beach? Probably forest. Forest, okay. You're into hiking and venturing out? Yep. Okay, that's cool. You know, horror movie can be uh, filmed in forests. (laughs) Yes, definitely the creepy forest type. (laughs) Closing question. That's one question I ask from every guest, but I wanted to include it every time because it just really wraps up our passion for the STEM field and science in general. So what does science mean to you? Science to me is my way of making an impact on the world and although science moves slowly and especially healthcare science moves very slowly you know if you have the passion and you have the drive you can take you know the most complex being on the entire earth which you know in my opinion is the human body and you can find a way to combine all of these different um, organic compounds and machinery and you can solve these problems that you know we can't even see with the naked eye and being able to create this kind of change in an organism is so incredible to me and science in general of just the education behind figuring out how does our world work and you know we all exist in the world but you know, I, well, I sometimes I just zone out and I look at something and I think, oh my God, can I, I can imagine how many atoms are in that, you know, in that little section of the wall. Or I can imagine, you know, all of the different, all of the physics that's happening behind, you know, that gy- like gymnast doing a cartwheel. And just the ability for humans to take math and physics and chemistry and biology and to figure out how everything around us works is so mind-boggling to me that over, you know, the past few centuries, we have literally been able to break down our world into number formulas and to be able to give these compounds names and to figure out things that work and being able 
to combine things together and solve problems with this knowledge is incredibly beautiful to me. And it's just so encapsulating that science um, is just the art of figuring things out and making new things. And I think that's what it means to me is just the ability to solve problems with this incredible wealth of knowledge that millions of humans have accumulated together. That's really beautiful. And I really like that you've mentioned different angles and aspects of science, how it finds our life. Now this life is in all caps, all the way. Yeah, I'm just really glad to have you on the podcast. I think you've shared some valuable advice. Thank you for also expanding on your passion for science and uh, being on the podcast today. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me. It was lots of fun. I appreciate it. You can find us on Instagram at DrivelStampPodcast. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and make sure to stay tuned for the next one.